Oh, Cold World Podcast, episode two. We're back. We got our first guest today. He is a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg National Park and just so happens to be my father. So that's pretty cool. He's got a lot of information that he's going to share today about the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, We hope to do a three-part series with this, do one for each day of the battle. The battle lasted three days long. So that's that's what the goal is here. Today we're going to talk about day one. There's a ton of info to get into. Um, So I'm happy to have them, and let's get started. All right, let's get right into it then. Today we're going to do day one only of the Battle of Gettysburg. So we'll just try to focus on that today. Uh, There'd be so much information if we were to do all three days in one podcast. Uh, I want to start off, thanks for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, First question I have for you is, I think I know the answer to this one, but I just wanted to make sure this battle was the biggest battle in the entire Civil War. Well, there's, there's different rankings for different battles. So we always have to clarify that it's the largest battle of the entire American Civil War in terms of total casualties. So 51,000 is the most widely accepted number at this time of the casualties. So casualties are killed, wounded, captured, or missing. And that total between both armies is 51,000 over the three days. Now that is the largest total of any battle. But in terms of say the bloodiest single day in the American Civil War, that right. that remains at the Battle of Antietam, twenty three thousand casualties in one, one single day. day. Wow. Uh, day two at Gettysburg uh, gets close to twenty two thousand casualties, so it nearly achieved that level. But right. Antietam is the single bloodiest day. Um, but then, in terms of outright kill, that, that's a difficult thing. So mo- most of the evaluation of things like that are in the casualty numbers. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this battle was not supposed to take place here, though, correct? I, I mean, in terms of the, it wasn't a planned thing, like, let's go, we're, we're going to meet here at Gettysburg. It was kind of just forced upon both, both sides? Yeah, that's correct. So... As, as the armies are moving in this campaign, and, and we can talk about why Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was in Pennsylvania to begin with, but as they were maneuvering, there was no set, decided location where they would meet. Uh, so both sides really are looking and uh, maneuvering and really in a bit of a fog, and there's various reasons for that. Uh, as to where the enemy is and where this encounter might take place. Uh, General Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army, one of his goals is he does want to meet the enemy. And so he does want to engage in a decisive battle. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would like uh, to choose where. We can get into a little bit uh, of the, well, why did it happen here? It kind of draws Lee's Army into battle. So... I think the nature of your question is correct, uh, your assumption that it wasn't planned, because once they begin to fight out on the outskirts of Gettysburg, it will take nearly a, another full day for the Union and the Confederate armies to completely arrive at Gettysburg. So that gives you a feel for how far away from this little south-central Pennsylvania town they were scattered 
when the first uh, engagement occurs. And it's going to take some time for them all to arrive there. So definitely it speaks to the unplanned nature of where. Right. So that kind of leads me into another question. Where was the first shot taken then? The first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg is recognized as a shot taken by um, Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. And that takes place approximately two miles west of Gettysburg on modern Route 30. At the time, it would have been known as the Chambersburg Pike. Uh, That shot's going to take place uh, somewhere around 7.30 a.m. in the morning of July 1st. So that's the recognized one, but uh, veterans after the war... uh, there were others who wanted to lay claim of right, the first right, trigger pull. Right, right. Yeah, like, no, no it we, me, we it did it us. north of town. Yeah, okay. So there's a little bit of that, but it's most widely accepted. It's Marcellus Jones. Okay, okay. So that who was involved in the first engagement? I know you said Marcellus Jones, but let's say the first real engagement, the first real skirmish where some serious shots were fired in it and word was spreading out that now now this is a battle here. Yeah, so th- there were some altercations. So there were some meetings with Robert E. Lee's army of some federal forces, some Pennsylvania forces, emergency militia, June 26th, June 28th, some of those. But historians don't lump that into the Battle of Gettysburg. It's part of the Gettysburg campaign as a larger picture. So let's limit this to the actual Battle of Gettysburg. Right. So it's good to put it in context that the previous day of June 30th, federal cavalry rode into Gettysburg from the south. Um, That's uh, Brigadier General John Buford's Union Cavalry. And and they are in the advance. They are well out in front of the body of the Union Army. They're scouting for roads. They're looking for intelligence. They're passing what they can determine what they can discern from talking to Pennsylvania residents and getting leads on to where the elements of Robert E. Lee's army are. And so they occupy the town of Gettysburg, and the Gettysburg citizens are happy to see them. And so what Buford's cavalry will do is, recognizing the road network, uh, 10 major roads coming into this little south-central Pennsylvania town from literally all points of the compass, and Buford looks at terrain around the town, uh, very suitable for a defensive fight. Recognizing that that road network might be key for the movements of the army, he's going to ask the nearest Union infantry, Major General John Reynolds of the First Corps, should I, do you concur, that we should hold this place? And Reynolds will send back word to the affirmative. What that does is that sets up July 1st, that Union Cavalry, overnight on June 30th, is setting up outposts about two miles out, side of the town of Gettysburg, on the roads east, north, and west of the town. These are the directions in which Buford realizes the enemy army might approach. So they had already been through Gettysburg, the Confederate army. They had moved to the east. He has evidence and word that they are to the north and to the west. But he has no idea if they might approach. So he's got these outposts, these outlooks, these, these uh, I'm going to call them vedettes or pickets. They're going to stay awake 24-7. 
You know, they're going to stay awake all night. They're going to be relieved, but they are going to be awake and watching those roads so that there's no surprise advance toward the town. To and, hold or to defend, to hold or to recognize and then fall back? Or? Yeah, recognize. And the, the hope is that as they've occupied the town now, Beaufort's got about 2,900 horse soldiers. Uh, I've, I've often thought that it would be really cool to see 2,900 horsemen. Right. In one place. I'd like yeah. to see that coming up the road. Yeah. And what's that look like? Right. Uh, the logistics. That, that's pretty cool. But Buford moves in with 2,900 men on horseback. Um, so he's got a he's got a little bit of a force. But he knows that if Lee's army moves toward the town in earnest, that he will not have the forces capable of holding them back. His hope is that John Reynolds, with the lead body of the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army, he's going to move there the next morning. So he's going to get up his men up early in the morning of July 1st and start moving toward Gettysburg. They're just a few miles away. should only take them two to three hours to reach the outskirts of Gettysburg to be there. Buford's hope is, well, maybe the enemy won't approach. And Reynolds can move in. We can start to have a more sizable force. This might just be a stepping stone as right. to where we go from here, but these roads will be good. And um, so he's going to set up these posts, but he realizes Reynolds will be on his way. Not sure what might take place the next day. I have no idea. Now, on the Confederate side of things, there was a small body of men that had been in camp about eight miles west of the town of Gettysburg. And, and Lee's orders up to this point when he recognized that the Union Army was in, in Maryland, north of the Potomac River, is he began to concentrate his army. He had them spread out. They were gathering supplies, causing unrest. All of a sudden, on June 28th, he realizes that the Union Army is closer to the, the, his spread out army than he expected. Now, his plans were that he would always, he should have two days of advance notice to concentrate his army back together. What was alarming to him on June 28th is that the lead part of the Union Army is within a one day's march of his scattered army. So this causes an alarm to him. He's surprised. Uh, there's, There's a reason for that surprise. We could get into where his cavalry was, where's Jeb Stewart, mm-hmm. because Jeb Stewart should be doing what John Buford's doing. Right. He should be riding out ahead. there. There should be no surprises. But, you know, Jeb Stewart's a story that he gets isolated. He he rides to the east. His, his intention was that he would reunite with Lee's army in south central Pennsylvania and continue to do this job. But he's been thwarted in that because the Union Army's moved north so quickly Every time he tried to get back, he's being blocked. And so he's being diverted and diverted, and this is delaying him. But he's not on the scene. And this is, this is the biggest reason why Lee is surprised to find out the Union Army's within a day. So he's going to issue orders. Let, let's concentrate east of the mountains on, on the Gettysburg side of the South Mountain Ridge in a little town called Cashtown. So he's ordered his army to march to Cashtown. And... Some of the men that have already been at Cashtown marched toward Gettysburg on a supply run. You know, you know they're going to run for some more groceries. Nothing, nothing's ever picked clean. So, right. you know, they're, they're looking for supplies, anything that they can use, food, maybe food for their horses, etc. And as they approach Gettysburg from the west, 
they see Buford's cavalry. Due to the nature of the way they sit their horses and they maneuver their mounts, they impress that that's a regular cavalry. That's not some of this emergency militiamen. Right. You know, kind of like, you know, volunteers, they just put down their pitchforks and, you know, we're going to defend Pennsylvania. Th- these guys have a, a more professional look. And so they, when they return to camp, they report that the Union cavalry is in Gettysburg. This, again, really is a surprise to Confederate leaders. Uh, they're, they're the general of, of their group is the Third Corps, Ambrose Powell Hill. Powell has a hard time believing that, as do his division commanders. And so what they determined to do, based on this sighting, is it's very important that we find out exactly what might be at Gettysburg. They also recognize that road network. What did you see? And so what they determined to do on June 30th is, we'll march back to Gettysburg tomorrow to determine exactly what type of force might be present there. This whole scenario sets up why there's a Confederate column of troops, infantry, marching towards Gettysburg in the morning of July 1st, why there's Union cavalry two miles outside of the town of Gettysburg. Behind that, you've got some Union infantry under the command of Major General John Reynolds. They're moving toward Gettysburg. We're now going to see this play out. But understand, at, at the time, these players have no idea what's about to be playing out. And, and so that's kind of setting the stage a little bit for you know, this unplanned nature we talked right. about earlier, right. uh, uh, who's going to be engaged. And so in the very early morning hours of July 1st, a, a column of uh, nearly 15,000 Confederate soldiers are going to arise from camps west of Gettysburg over toward Cashtown, and their march is going to start toward Gettysburg. The John Buford's Union Cavalry, they're along that road, Chambersburg Pike, about two miles out. And there's two or three guys there at all times, you know, and they get relieved every three hours. And so the the lucky guys that were there at the time, they, in the distance, they start to see dust. And so that indicates to them that there's a movement. So their eyes are now watching out that road because the first thing they see is dust. The next thing they're going to see is Movement. They have binoculars, mind you. Now, they can look out there quite some distance and see. They're immediately going to send word back toward town that we've got a movement coming down this road toward us. So they're going to send that notice back. Their lieutenant is Marcellus Jones. He's going to come now at the gallop, having received this word You know, at, at his, his headquarters farther back toward the town. He's going to read reach this point and he's there now at this point along that road when that infantry column is marching and they get within probably around a quarter mile and he's going to ask his sergeant if he can borrow his carbine rifle and have the honor of opening the ball really so to speak yes so he this is recounted as you know if you're in the military and um, there's a possibility of engagement. And, and this is true to this day, to my understanding, is you have to have authority to engage. Right, right, of course. Okay, to pull that trigger, yeah. whether you're you know, a pilot or you're, you're on the ground or wherever, there has to be approval that, yes, engage in combat. Or you may be under orders to be completely defensive. But 
Marcellus Jones, he's authorized to engage the enemy. And so when he asks for that rifle, he knows I'm going to get this thing started. And so he levels it on a, on a fence rail on the property of Ephraim Whistler. And that property is preserved, by the way, today by the Gettysburg National Military Park. Most visitors don't venture there yeah. because it's really not part of the major battlefield, mm-hmm. but it is owned by the federal government. There is a low marker there right along the roadway indicating this is the spot of the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones pulls the trigger around 7.30 in the morning. The purpose, their purpose at that time will be to halt the column, give them notice that there is a enemy force here. here. Make them get out of column of march. You're going to have to spread out into, you know, a spread out battlefront uh, uh, formation. Deploy skirmishers, which are a looser uh, form of advancement and then a more formal battle line, you know, with the men shoulder to shoulder. Right. They're going to make them engage in that. That's going to take a little time. And make them come at them. They're playing the time game. They, they want need to, to use, buy some time. Yes, they want to use the space. And that space equals time back toward Gettysburg with the knowledge that reinforcements may arrive and be on their way, and they would be able to then defend that, that road network, the intersection that is at the center of the town of Gettysburg. And, and so they're going to use that spatial ground, that two miles, to their advantage and these tactics to slow their advance. Okay, so this is very much a game of the clock. Right. So that's who, that's who engages first, is elements of John Buford's cavalry, the 8th Illinois Cavalry. The lead element is going to be under uh, Brigadier General um, Henry Heath, um, and Heath's men are, are going to be the first engaged. Major General Henry Heath, he goes by Harry Heath, his men are in the lead, and so they'll be the first engaged. Now the rest of the men behind... They're just going to kind of wait in call. So it's basically like a traffic jam now. And so now, you know, there's enough forces out front that should be able to clear the way. Uh, these guys are sitting in traffic at this point, and so they're going to be waiting now. They, they're going to be able to hear, you know, shots out ahead of them. Um, and as then the movement begins, then they'll be able to keep coming up, keep coming up behind, keep coming up behind. That's very interesting to me that you said about him kind of Realizing the significance of firing the first shot, I, I never really thought anything about that. That even to this day, it, it's kind of a significant thing, and people understand it. That the first shot fired is is important, and it's like known in history. It's it's documented, and and people talk about it. Like that's yeah, yes. Yeah. Sergeant Schaefer and and Marcellus Jones, they they survived the war. They will come back. Uh, and they will part, be part of the dedication of that stone. But yeah. as they recant the story, uh, it is very much apparent that Marcellus Jones recognizes the gravity right. of the situation. Can I borrow your rifle? Yeah. May, may I have the honor of starting of opening the ball? Oh, right. Huh. right. So I, you mentioned Jeb Stewart a couple times. He's very highly criticized for his actions before and leading up to the battle. Is that correct? I mean, well, Major General uh, Jeb Stewart uh, is highly acclaimed. So let's not okay. let's not 
be confused that Jeb Stuart is a highly skilled and experienced cavalry officer. Um, and he does great work throughout the, the, the Civil War. Uh, he's known for these uh, brash and audacious rides. Uh, he did one in 1862 where he rode around the Union Army in the peninsula east of, the, east of Richmond. You know, and, and so he's been very, very capable. In fact, early in, in the Civil War, the Confederate cavalry w- was the superior to the Union cavalry. No doubt about it. Union cavalry could not uh, hold their own against the, these Confederate horsemen. And uh, Jeb Stuart is a big part of that. But as the war goes on and the Union army, and there's reasons for this, early on, you know, the Union government didn't think this war would last very long. Right, yeah. Cavalry just so happens to be the most expensive branch of military forces to equip and train. Hmm. Because you got to buy horses. Right. It's not only a man you're paying, but you got to get, get a horses. horse. It's, there's gotta they got to be, be healthy. It's got to be a good horse. Mm-hmm. They've got to be cared for. Uh, the armaments for a soldier on horseback is different than a foot soldier. You can't muzzle load, right. really. Uh, you need something, you know, that you can load more from the breech, break the gun mm-hmm. open and load it on horseback. Right. Um, so this is something that initially the Union Army kind of didn't see the need to do this very much. Right. We don't need large bodies. of. This won't be very long. It shouldn't. We shouldn't need to go to yeah. the expense. Plus, you know how long it'll take us to train yeah. uh, horsemen to do the maneuvers on horseback. It, it's probably it's not. It's going to be over by then. Overkill a little bit. Like, it'll be over by then. Let's not even go to the trouble. But as the war goes on, and then it becomes apparent, you know what? This this may not be a short affair. Union Army starts to really the the federal government invests in that. They start to equip. These, these men now start to get battle experience, and as they, quote-unquote, come of age, the early engagement to the campaign of Gettysburg occurs at a place called Brandy Station, Virginia, where Union cavalry face off. It's the largest cavalry battle in North America. It's June 9th, 1863. It's the beginning of the Gettysburg campaign. And Union cavalry clash with Jeb Stuart's Confederate cavalry. And they bloody their nose pretty good. It, it is a large cavalry battle. Stuart's a little stung by that. I mean, they end up barely winning the day, holding some key terrain. Uh, but they got knocked around a good bit, and they're not used to that. And so he's a little bit maybe stinging. Uh, as Lee's army is marching now toward the north. And um, around June, I believe it's around June 25th, uh, Jeb Stewart's cavalry was blocking mountain passes to the east of Robert E. Lee's marching army. Okay, uh, They're coming up the Shenandoah Valley. They're, they're headed north through the Shenandoah Valley. They call that going down the valley because the river actually flows northward, so they call it down. Yeah. If you look at a map, it can be confusing. It's like, wait a minute, are they going down? They're coming north? or yeah. you know, Because a lot of people on a map would say down. Down south. south. No, they're going down the valley. They're moving north. Jeb Stewart's guarding the mountain passes to the, to the east 
So no Union scouts can see how spread out Lee's army is, what their movements are. Are they stopping? Are they going to continue to move north? What are they doing? So Jeb Stewart's cavalry is doing a great job of that. and he, They do. They, they do a great job of blocking many Union attempts to try and get through those mountain passes to find out what's going on. But at, at, at that point, once Lee's army is crossing the Potomac, Jeb Stewart asks permission to ride to the east of the Union Army. So he's going to ride around them to the east, get between the Union Army and Washington, mm. start to disrupt supply and communication lines and be a you know, be real problem, you know, hair, fly in the ointment. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe throw a little bit of uh, a doubt uh, question into what's Lee's campaign about here? We've got cavalry here you know, between us and Washington. That's going to maybe throw off the Union's movements, uh, give them an alarm, maybe. But Lee agrees to it with the caveat that you will reunite reunite with my army in south-central Pennsylvania and continue your job of scouting our right, our east flank. Why? So that we have ample information as to what might be approaching from that direction. And so that's why Jeb is now, as he makes this ride, and he attempts now, he's going to sever some some communication lines. Mm-hmm. He's doing his job. He's disrupting things. But as he tries to move back to the West to get back to the Confederate Army, he runs into major Union forces. And so he, you know, he, he doesn't he have can't. the body of men to, to engage in that kind of uh, affair. And so he will continue to move to the Northeast, to the Northeast, to the Northeast. And he's going to keep trying to do that uh, to the point where he is actually the last... Union or Confederate force to cross the Potomac River. I think that's always an interesting little tidbit. Mm -hmm. Is that of Lee's army and the Union army, Jeb Stewart's cavalry is the last to cross the Potomac River. That gives you a feel for where they are. Right. You know, geographically. Kept getting blocked. Kept getting blocked. 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 They're, They're bringing up the rear. And... What he's probably most criticized for, and maybe rightfully so, is that he didn't call it off. At some point, just say, nope, this isn't working. Fall back, go back to the south to a point where you can get around the way you came around. Where you came from. And go back around to the south and catch up with Lee from from the south. Understanding that there's my safe route. Right. But he continues northward. And, you know, he makes it worse. He... He runs into a major Union supply wagon train, captures over a hundred brand new Union wagons and horses and, you know, laden with supplies he thinks he's captured. You know, spoils. This is great. It it all all does is slow him down more. And so it just makes it worse. And he probably wasn't aware that he was really needed at Gettysburg. Well, and he does try to communicate. He tries to send riders with information through as to his whereabouts, as to what he knows, because he knows what he's been running into. So he knows on a map where they are. Yeah. And so he's getting a feel for, this is progressing farther than I'm sure we want. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's making attempts. It's not like he you know, has lost his talent. He has uh, been trying. 
but it's just one of those things. It's it's probably his low moment of the entire American Civil War mm-hmm. for Jeb Stuart. Yeah, so criticized, uh, maybe rightfully so in some aspects, but uh, uh, this is a talented cavalry officer. But uh, there, there's valid reasons why he got into the kind of into the pickle he did. Right. But it plays a major, major role in how. How you know, that it. encounter occurs at Gettysburg yeah. without Confederate knowledge that would have been absolutely different if there would had been active Confederate cavalry guarding Scouting. that eastern edge of where Lee's army was at that time. Right. It would have been completely different. Right. So you said about Buford, he's, he's riding ahead, he's kind of scouting the way. Jeb Stewart was kind of tasked with doing the same thing to some point. But if you've ever seen um, the Gettysburg movie, the movie Gettysburg, right. um, I know they have a scene or two in there about a lone scout, you know, like one or two men that would ride alone to try to find enemy positions, enemy movements. Is that accurate? Did they have single men or that would ride ahead and then report back? Uh, yeah, so any body of cavalry, they're going to deploy... Um, some riders, um, um, less than a company of men, maybe uh, deploy a, a captain and a few men on scouting missions, right? And so that would occur, and, and they may split up and know that, hey, ride out, take a look. Let us know. Come report back, you know, that kind of thing. And they, they may do that where they're, where they're moving along. Now, in the movie, I believe one of the things you might be thinking of is the spy Harrison that is yes. depicted early yeah. in that movie, right? Yeah. He's by himself, and he's and he's in, you know, civilian clothing. Uh, the actor. Uh, yeah, the actor, yeah. you know, uh, Harrison. And so that is factual that Harrison was a scout, a spy. And it is Harrison that is um, credited with bringing the information to Lee at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. So Lee is headquartered in Chambersburg. When Harrison uh, reaches the Army of Northern Virginia, and he start, and he can tell them they're north of the Potomac River, and he can put it on a map. This is this is where they've got. This is about how many men, and this is kind of where their movement is. That's the moment of surprise for Robert mm-hmm. E. Lee that the Union Army is not two days away. They're one, one day, day away. away. I've, got to, I've got to concentrate immediately. Because there is now a danger. And in the orders that he issues for his army to concentrate, he cautions them. Do not bring on a general engagement until the army is reunited, until we're concentrated. So you can tell. The evidence of the, of the concern, it's there in the documented order. Do not get into a general engagement. His concern is that any isolated portion of his army should get into an engagement. They can be defeated in in their isolation. They could be outnumbered. Right. We got to get everybody back together. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that I kind of I like to think about or imagine sometimes is, I mean, being a resident at Gettysburg at this time, right? Like this is your home. This is your town. This is where you were born. You grew up. <sighs> I mean, was it? Did a lot of people flee? Did they just, when they found out what what might take place here, was it like 
let's get out of Dodge, let's get out of here? Or was it like this is this is our town, we're not we're not leaving? What what was kind of the the feeling there with the townspeople? So, so you're spot on. Uh, it's fearful. Yeah. Uh, think about it. They they are now this this country and its citizens have been reading papers for two years now. And they've seen the casualty list and these horrific battles and the news. And uh, and so it's absolutely fearful with the prospect that the war might be coming into the north. As you think about it, all these battles that they've been reading about, these are occurring, you know, in Maryland and Virginia, most of them in Virginia and parts out west, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee and Mississippi. The, you know, southern states... You know, the vast majority of northern states will never see that. Uh, and so, a- as citizens of south-central Pennsylvania, they do get word days in advance that an yeah. enemy army is on the move northward. Where might they be headed? The Pennsylvania governor, Andrew Curtin, is documented as having information that Lee's Confederate army is moving in this direction. And he sends, like demands and alerts to the federal government saying, what are you doing? Right. Like, they're coming this way. He's going to be the governor who calls up troops. He's going to send out the alarm and say, we need emergency militiamen. So that's where he's going to call up this, this emergency militia because he knows they're coming. But as, as people of citizens, whether you're in the rural areas or whether you're in a town, they get word that, oh my, it could be coming this way. So there's a number of reactions. If you are a farmer and you own the ground, you yeah. own cattle and horses, and you, you know you've brought in your harvest, you depend upon that harvest to yeah. the next year's harvest. These, these are all assets you don't want to lose, and this is something that an enemy will absolutely be take. looking for. They're yeah. going to take sure. it. Uh, so you're not only fearful that. What might they do to me and my family? Or, you know, is our, our lives in danger? But certainly our assets are in danger. So one of the reactions by farmers is they're going to take cattle and horses and take them away and try oh. and hide them. Oh. So they're going to hide them in the mountains. Okay. So they're going to take them toward the mountain. That they, they maybe pay somebody and say, take, take the cattle, take the horses, and go up into the woods in the mountain and hide them. And maybe they won't find them there. So when oh. they show up here at the farm, eh, no, we don't, have, we don't have any cattle. No, sorry. Well, there's no cattle here. Or at least if you can hide some of them. Get them out. Right. Get them out of the path of an enemy. So you're going you're to take various steps to try and retain your assets. Now, there may be people as well that are going to flee. They, they fear so much for their, their health and safety that they're going to load up what they can in a, in a wagon and we're going to leave. So we're going to actually flee in yeah. advance of their go arrival. Go farther north? Yeah, go yeah. farther north. Go west, go farther north. In a direction that, you know, we're going to stay away from them. Yeah. Other people will stay on their property. You know, the farmer might stay at the, at the house. Yeah. I'm not leaving. It, it's a better ch- With the thought that uh, it's a better chance that if I'm at least present, that I might be able to help. You know what are you what are you taking or why are you here? You know what do you want? So it's just like people do today when there's a hurricane. Yeah. You know people say get out. But what do they do? They stay. Yeah. They say no, no, I'm riding I'm it not out. Leaving. Why? Yeah. Because they they have a they have a personal attachment that 
maybe if I'm here, there's certain things that I can, can do, do to protect this, yeah. my asset, right? right? So it's a natural human reaction. So some people stay, mm-hmm. and, and they're going to do that. Now, leading up to July 1st, there are numerous occasions of documented the boy cried wolf at Gettysburg. So you talk about the townspeople. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to say, the, the, the rebel army is coming, they're going to be here today. That might have occurred on June 18th, June 19th, June 20th. Different uh, days. It's documented. And, and we have, you know, people's diaries from the town of Gettysburg yeah. where people load up all their stuff and skedaddle. They're coming And they're out. running out right. of town. They're leaving. You know, and they no more than get out of town that evening or whatever and find out. It never happened. Nobody came. Okay. All right. Safe to come back. You can come back. So they come back. A day or two later. So there's occurrences where this happens like two or three times. Right. It's the boy cried wolf. Yeah. Here they come. Here they come. And there are certain facts. You're right. These armies on the move. June 26th, uh, General Early's element of Lee's army actually marches through Gettysburg. They come to Gettysburg. They demand that the shopkeepers, town leaders come to the center square, open these stores. They are absolutely going to load up and take all that they can from the town of Gettysburg. They do that. And, it, and it's terrifying. Right. Today it would be like terror. terror. Yeah. And they do. They take supplies. So it does come to pass that the enemy does visit Gettysburg. They're going to take, uh, and the farmers all around the area... You know, from from State Line, Pennsylvania, Greencastle, Chambersburg, Shippensburg, Carlisle, all the way up toward Harrisburg. All the farmers in this rural area are impacted. Everywhere Lee's armies go, they spread out. They're taking cattle. They're taking horses. They're taking chickens, hogs, tons of hay, oats. Everywhere there's a mill where they grind flour. They're going to take barrels of flour because that's refined grain. You can, you know, yeah. mix that into a dough and bake bread. Yeah, right. So, it's gonna be like gold. Oh, it's even more valuable than just the wheat. Yeah. Right. So you got wheat grain, but you know, milled now. You got flour. So they're gonna take barrels of flour. So they're gonna collect. As far as Lee's campaign into Pennsylvania, one thing you can always call it a success is that he did get massive amounts of supply. Even though he's defeated after the battle, he does go back south with massive amounts of supplies. Mm. Thousands of head of cattle, additional horses, wagons loaded to the brim with, you know, food and and, uh, foodstuffs. Mm -hmm. So from that aspect, you can't say that he didn't achieve that level. But Gettysburg citizens, some of them flee, some of them stay. Now, an interesting aspect of South Central Pennsylvania are free blacks. Free African-American citizens. They are free here. They own property here. But there's a whole different aspect of when the Confederate Army is coming for them. Oh, right. Because if you're a free black citizen, your fear is that they will capture you and your status will change from a free citizen now to slavery. You may have... Never had any history of being a slave. You were born free in a northern state. You've always been free. But that could change. And so the the free blacks in the area, they are absolutely going to flee. They're going to run literally for their lives. And there's a, a pop, large population of free blacks that live in the town of Gettysburg. And they're going to they're gonna go. Yeah. They're gone. We got to get 
We got to get out of here. And and there is uh, documented historical truth to their fears were well founded because uh, black citizens that were caught by Lee's army were taken in bondage and they will be taken as prisoners back into the south. And back so into slavery. That's absolutely how yeah. they look at it. And, and so they were. Uh, uh, well-founded in their their fleeing. Right. So that's a little yeah. bit of the reaction of people. All right, so let's get into uh, let's get into the heat of the day on day one, okay? Mm. So where did the first major battle take place? Uh, how many men on each side, if you have that information? And and who were kind of the, the key uh, generals or, or the key men making decisions for for those that battle or those couple battles. Yeah, so we we already mentioned Major or uh, Brigadier General John Buford. He's yeah. got the cavalry, so his right. his men engage initially. They're going to use that two miles of ground, about two hours of delay, uh, till they're backed up, uh, basically to the last ridge just west of the town of Gettysburg. That's when John Reynolds' infantry arrives. So we're going to have about ten thousand infantry arrive. Now. Okay. So we got twenty nine hundred, which would be a, a big, a large force. That's right? a core. That's, that, yeah. that, that's a core sized group of men. So ten thousand. So they're going to arrive, and not all at once, but you know, in their marching column, they're going to start to arrive. So we're going to get a deployment arrival of ten thousand infantry, foot soldiers, backing up twenty nine hundred cavalry. So, We've got a column of about fifteen thousand. Confederate soldiers coming from the west. While this is going on, word goes out that hey, shots are fired at the town of Gettysburg, and elements of Lee's army marching to Cashtown get word from couriers. Don't go to Cashtown, go to go Gettysburg. To Gettysburg. Right. They're going to change their route. That's what's going to cause them to approach from the north. Because they were on the march toward, excuse me, Cashtown. When they changed their route, that's going to bring them from the north mm. down upon Gettysburg. So the initial infantry fighting, infantry battle in earnest begins west of the town of Gettysburg, right along that Chambersburg Pike, modern right. Route 30, along what they call McPherson's Ridge. Uh, and so that's where the engagements will occur. Uh, Herbst Woods, right along the road, north and south of the road, Initial fighting is going to happen around 9.30. It's going to last to about 10.30, quarter till, quarter till 11, okay. that initial hit. Right. That's when these Confederate forces that were on the march toward Gettysburg have the answer that they were looking for. What were they marching to Gettysburg for? To find out what had been seen. Well, you got your answer in a big way now because mm-hmm. when you ran right up against the regular Union Army, Army of the Potomac. There's no doubting that. The big boys. The big boys. You got you got punched in the nose. They're going to fall back. There's going to be a lull in the fighting. Because they have Lee's orders. Lee's aren't Lee is not there. Yeah. Lee's not with this part of the army. The the commander of the Union Army is not there. George Meade. George Meade's not there. Okay? These are local decisions being made by local commanders. Confederate Army has these orders. Don't bring on a general engagement until we are all concentrated, right? Now, if you reform an attack again, are you not breaking Robert E. Lee's orders? You would be. You would be. You could You could claim the first encounter was chain. Uh, we didn't know. 
We, we were just marching. ran into it. Yeah, we were we marching were there to find it. out. Right. We were getting information. Now you got to hold back. While they're holding back, mm. the rest of Reynolds' men arrive. Reynolds is killed, by the way, in the initial fighting. So Major General John Reynolds is killed. Right, so when Reynolds is coming in, his men are instantly getting put into battle. As soon as they're as coming as up they're the like, road, they're literally running across the farm fields out to the west of Gettysburg. They're immediately deploying. As those columns of men are arriving, they're going right into the battle. Yeah. No, no delay. No time to think about it. Many of them are loading their gun. On the run, because when you march, it's it's not a loaded gun. Right. You don't yeah, have no. a round in there. No. And so many of them are rushing out to the battlefield. They're, they're tearing cartridges, and they got to load the gun so that they can start the fight. That, that's how urgent it is. Wow. Yeah. So the balance of the 10,000 arrive. Reynolds has been killed. Uh, one of his second-in-command, uh, Major General uh, Abner Doubleday. Mm-hmm. He was a division commander under Reynolds. He rises up. Now he's commander of the Corps. So he's ranking infantry at that point. And then during the lull, things are going to continue to develop now. More Confederate troops are on their way from the north, as I said. More Union troops. Reynolds sent out information that he has begun to fight west of the town of Gettysburg. He wants to defend this road network. He's going to ask other Union Corps, come to Gettysburg as fast as you can. The Union 11th Corps is on their way. They're going to arrive. So, see, the numbers are going to start to grow now. This word's going out. Hey, we got into a scuffle. We got into a fight. We've run into the enemy. Both sides. Word's going out. So people are going to start to arrive. It's going to build then, and fighting will occur north of the town of Gettysburg, starting off a geographical location called Oak Hill, Oak Ridge, uh, north of the town of Gettysburg, in a place called uh, Blotcher's Knoll. Along these roads, coming down from the north, the numbers are going to grow throughout the day to where there's around, I believe, 22,000 Confederates engaged, somewhere around uh, 20,000 Union troops engaged. So we're engaging 42,000 men now Mm -hmm. in various different elements of the Confederate and the Union Army. Uh, Robert E. Lee arrives around... 1.30 is probably somewhere where we can get it. That okay. he arrives at Gettysburg he, no, to mid-day. the sound of a battle that, yeah, he had, that he has ordered that there should be no general engagements. Mm-hmm. And he can hear this. You know, you can. Mm-hmm. I always like to tell, think, what, what, what is what he thinking is as he's on? riding? Yeah, right. And he can hear the boom of artillery and the rattle of musketry, the, the sound of a major concentration. He, he's got to feel like. Things are what out of control. The hell? Yeah. Exactly. Things are out of control. So now he's probably nervous that it's his men that are on the losing end of this. That because I didn't, I didn't order this. He did not. In, he did not order that. It's, it's whatever is occurring. It's unbeknownst to him. Right. When he arrives at Gettysburg, the situation starts to get clear that his army's arriving in greater numbers. Uh, maybe now starting to get the advantage of position mm-hmm. to outflank the Union Army. You know, as I said earlier, his plan in Pennsylvania was to have a decisive battle. Yeah. Now, this is playing out. He didn't maybe expect these things to be occurring, but what he's looking for is, do I hold the advantage? And at this point, he's going to condone attacks now for the afternoon. Um, and so he's going to, you know, 
let it go. He's going to basically withdraw the no-fight clause right. in the afternoon, uh, let his elements of his army attack, and they do overwhelm the, the newly arrived Union 11th Corps, uh, John Reynolds, now Abner Doubleday's Union 1st Corps. The fighting grows in its intensity north of the town of Gettysburg. Now you've got north and west of the town of Gettysburg. Confederate forces overwhelm the Union forces, you know, uh, on the battlefield right around 3.30 in the afternoon. It has grown to this point. The Union lines give way. It's going to take now uh, about two and a half, three hours fighting as they, they retreat off the fields north and west of town through the town of Gettysburg. Okay, so we're, we're retreating back we're, through so town. They're going to fight right through the town of Gettysburg. If you visit Gettysburg National Military Park, then you look at a park map, you see these battlefield grounds that are preserved by the federal government, and you see this town of Gettysburg. It's not part of it. That's just because it's private property. Mm. It's not preserved. It's battlefield. They fought. They died. They got wounded. They yeah. got captured all through the streets and alleys wow. of the town of Gettysburg. Citizens are hiding in their basements. They can hear the boom of cannons right outside down their the door. street. Right People down the street. Sh- People running past their basement windows. Shots being fired, men falling, wounded men kicking in the door, coming in to find seek. a place to, to hide with seek their wounds, help. seek help. I mean, it's just terror. Holy shit. As this, fu- this massive fight goes right through their town. A town of 2,400. 2,400 2,400 people. That's okay. the population of the town of Gettysburg. Okay. Being overwhelmed by 42,000 people now in armed conflict. Just to give you, you know, just some numbers to put with it. It's crazy. So the Union Army fights through the town of Gettysburg. But Union generals, Cavalry General John Buford, Major General John Reynolds, had identified key geographical features just to the south of town. Cemetery Hill, the Ridge, Culp's Hill, what would be known as the Round Tops. Key geographical features that if we can't keep them out of the town, the Confederates, if we can't actually hold the, the intersection in center of town, we can fall back to these hills. And we'll have an advantage there. That'll be good ground. Yeah. That'll be very good ground. And we'll still have the road network coming from the south, which right. is the direction they're coming from. So you can still get supplies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, the rest of the army can arrive. Right. You yeah. can supply yourself. Your back's to Washington. Mm-hmm. You've got the key roads, you know, to the southeast, to the to the south. That's key terrain. If we can't, they, they were making contingency. If we can't win the battle west and north of the town, fall back we'll here. here. So as the Indian armies are treating, they have a, you know, a rally point. They're going to rally on Cemetery Hill, mm-hmm. and that's what they're going to do. They're going to rally there that evening uh, as the battle now rages back through the town. Uh, casualties during all this fighting are going to be approximate, get up to 16,000. 16,000 casualties, killed, wounded, captured, in a fight completely unplanned by either commanding general, it's a, 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 an occurrence, a meeting west of town, and then throughout the day, as word grows, and yeah. it just keeps growing and growing, 16,000 killed, wounded, captured, missing. About 9,000 Union, 7,000 Confederates. You look at any Civil War battle, uh, usually the attackers incur more casualties than the stationary defenders because mm. yeah. it's harder to push somebody off a position, right. you know, 
Especially on good ground. You usually have to overwhelm them with numbers to drive them off. And mm-hmm. because you have to overwhelm them with numbers, you, you take the losses. Men. You right. take the losses. But here's the thing. Union Army loses around 3,000 men captured in the streets of Gettysburg. That's more than the population. Right. They lose more Union men captured during that fighting retreat. Than the people that live in the town. So that number's in that 9,000 Union casualties. So you got 9,000 Union casualties, about 7,000 Confederate casualties is what's going to be the, you know, the butcher's bill, so to speak, for this fight, this unplanned nature uh, of the fighting there as it occurs on July 1st. So in the Civil War, typically, how was it determined who won the day or who won the war? Was it determined in number of casualties or was it determined in who ended up getting the ground, so to speak, right? Like who, who took what they wanted? So you evaluate, did we win? Yeah. Two different ways. Tactically, as you said, who holds the ground? Mm-hmm. Who ran? Who, who now controls the field of battle? Right. You ran away, tactically I win because I got where you were. Okay, assuming that I definitely wanted that. Mm-hmm. That's the reason right. I attacked yeah. you. Right. So tactically, yes, who controls the ground? Who ran away? The other way is numerically. Who lost more? Mm-hmm. So when you look at July first, General Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army won both tactically and, and numerically, and so they in, they inflicted more losses on the Union Army, nine thousand versus his seven thousand, and tactically he drove them off the ridges north and west of the town of Gettysburg, drove them through the town and now controls the, the town. actual town, the actual s- city square, where, you know, the roundabout is, where all yeah. those roads converge into four, you know, a nice yeah. little four-way cross-section with the roundabout. The Confederates control that by evening. So you say, tactically and numerically, if there was a one-day battle at Gettysburg and it was only on July 1st, maybe the Union Army ran away toward Get- toward Washington, D.C., maybe there's another fight down the road somewhere else, the Battle of Gettysburg would have been a resounding Confederate victory. If it had ended on day one? July 1st. So if the Union Army at this point Has decides we're not staying at Gettysburg, we're going to go farther south, back into Maryland, toward D.C., which General George Meade absolutely could have done that. He could make that choice. The Battle of Gettysburg would be a Confederate victory. Robert E. Lee, chalk up another win. Wow. But the decision's going to be made. We're going to stay at Gettysburg. So I know you mentioned it with the the carbine rifle, and we talked a little bit with the the cavalry, the kind of weapons that they used. But for people that don't know, kind of just explain a little bit um, what, what kind of weapons were the... Uh, soldiers using what kind of weapons were the cavalry using, um, and how like to kind of describe what kind of ammo they're using, wh- how long it's going to take them mm-hmm. between shots. Because nowadays, I mean, it's nothing compared to what we're dealing with, what we're working with here in the Civil War. Yes, absolutely. So the the common foot soldier of infantry on either side is going to use a long-barreled muzzle-loading rifle. Now, most people think about the Revolutionary War with a flintlock, where they're, they're using powder, you know, they're putting powder in a mm-hmm. flashman. That gun has evolved to where the barrel is now has a spiral groove on the inside called a rifling. Right. 
It's not firing just a round ball now. It's it's a conical bullet, like we envision a bullet today. Mm-hmm. And they're going to still load that from the muzzle, though. And so their ammunition will be cartridged. So when they manufacture the ammunition for the muzzle-loading rifle, it comes in a paper cartridge. And it's a combination of a, a measured amount of black powder and that lead conical bullet. The soldier will take the cartridge, put it in the front of his mouth, and tear the paper open. That is the powder end. They will dump that powder down the barrel. They will then turn it around, and the bullet will then be seated in the end of the barrel. They will take their ramrod and ram that bullet down through the barrel, seating it on that black powder that Mm -hmm. they poured in it. Here's a little interesting fact for those that are medically uh, qualified as a soldier. You must have your front teeth. Oh. Why? How are you going to... It's hard to tear them, cut, you know, biting it on your side uh, teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So in the military, to this day, there's a term called 4F. If you're 4F, you, you're disqualified medically from serving. That's a term that comes from the Civil War, the four front teeth. If you don't have the four F, you're not served. Four front teeth. Yeah. So those in the military, they're <laughs> familiar with four F. You know, oh, well, what happened to him? Well, he was four F. Well, he got medically discharged. He's not medically fit. Well, it's got teeth. teeth. So there's a little interesting fact that people <laughs> can remember. How they load the gun, you got to tear it with your, two, <laughs> your four front teeth. Tear it open, pour the black powder down. Ram the bullet down. So they got to ram this this round down the barrel. If they're going to stay in one spot, they're not going to go to the trouble putting the ramrod back in the gun. They'll just stick it in the ground. Because okay. I'm going to be standing right here. So we're fighting here. I'll just stick it in the ground. Because I can just easily grab it, use it, put it right back. I don't have to put it down in the gun, yeah. pull it back out. Right. But if I'm going to be moving, i got to put right it back here, in the gun or I'll lose it. Right. Because I can't reload if I don't have that ramrod. So I rammed it down there. They now take a cap, and if people are familiar with, you know, cap guns, yeah. there's a little, you know, those little plastic caps that the gun, little toy guns mm-hmm. would snap against, and they little crack, <laughs> little yeah. crack. Well, this little cap, it's a metal cap. They would put it on the tip of a nipple at the back of the gun, where the hammer will strike. So they pull the hammer back, reach in their pouch, pull out one of these caps, set it on that nipple. Pull the gun up, aim, fire, the, the the hammer hits that cap, puts a spark down into the chamber, down into the barrel, yeah. igniting that black powder, launching that bullet out that rifled barrel, spins like a you know, nice tight quarterback's pass, yeah. gives it accuracy at a longer distance. Okay? As soon as the gun goes off, bang, you pull the gun down, reach in your pouch for another one of those paper cartridges, tear it with your teeth and start the process all over. In a stationary position, a trained, drilled infantry soldier could fire three aimed shots in a minute. 20 seconds. 20 seconds. 20 seconds to go through that sequence of tear it, dump the powder, put the, put the slug in, ram it down, put your ramrod down, cap your weapon, pull the hammer back, shoulder, aim, fire, repeat. 
That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. And and you think that the ammunition pouch carried on a soldier, standard issue going into battle would be sixty rounds. Sixty rounds. Now, if I'm stationary firing three rounds a minute, twenty minutes, I'm out of I'm out of ammo. Right. So always. Keep that in context of how long do people fight in a stationary position? How long does this battle actually last? And you hear about people running out of ammo. Well, no kidding. And then anybody that's been wounded and down that can't load their weapon, that's why they're going mm-hmm. to their pouch. And the guys that are still healthy and able to Take load, it. they're taking their rounds from their pouches because I'm running out because we're still fighting. It's mm-hmm. a half an hour later. It's 40 minutes later. There's been losses. Guys have been killed. Guys have been wounded. There's ammunition laying around here. You got to get it. And so that's the reason. Now, that's the typical infantry. There are still muzzle-loading smoothbore rifles in both armies. It's the exception, not the rule. And so there are those that are still dumping black powder down. It's a round ball. Sometimes they would shoot what they call buck and ball which has got like smaller buckshot with a round ball that when that's fired, it puts out like almost a shotgun pattern. Okay. Those are still a very effective and deadly weapon, but at a closer range. Right. It wouldn't be able to go as far. 100 yards and closer. Yeah. Whereas the rifled musket, the 58 caliber, there's a 56 caliber. These you can aim and, and fire accurately 300 yards. So that this is why a stationary position with an open view... The attacker is going to take more losses than the person stationary because yeah. it's harder to load and fire when you're on the move trying to attack somebody than if I'm in a maybe may a good position and we've stacked up some fence rails and we can sit Just here and load and fire and, fire and, fire. and I can see you from a great distance. This is why ground and the position, and we already said, you know, as Buford identified, good open fields and ridges and ground. Mm-hmm. High hill. Why are they looking at this stuff? Because they recognize the advantage the ground and the view in a defensive position offers to your future opportunity for success. So it's it's the weapons that create that situation of what you're looking for mm-hmm. for success. Right. So that's the typical weapon for the infantry. Now the cavalry, as we talked about, they're not. They don't want to be muzzle loading. There's going to be carbines that, that they can open the breech. So modern-day shotgun, you know, yeah. cracks open at the back, and you can see the back of the barrel. Mm-hmm. They can actually take their paper cartridge and push it in there. When they slam it shut, it cuts the paper, just like tearing ah. it with your teeth. They cap their rifle, pull the hammer back, and fire. But now they just crack it open, shove another, another paper cartridge. You can see it much quicker. Yeah. They can fire at a much faster rate. Their barrel is a lot shorter because it's easier to maneuver on horseback than the longer barrel. So So. shorter barrel, not as accurate. It is rifled though. Got to get closer. So you're in more close combat. Um, So cavalry, when they're engaged on horseback, there aren't a whole lot of casualties. It's more killed. It's more wounded and who gets driven off? Right. You know who who gets you know overwhelmed and beat up. Uh, cavalry fights don't have the killed and wounded uh, crazy numbers like in earnest infantry fights mm-hmm. because of the weapons and you're on horseback and you know. now the cavalrymen also will have a pistol 
This is a black powder round pistol now. Not like the pistols of today where we put a metal cartridge in it. Yeah. These are black powder loaded. you got six rounds. When they're done, you're not really reloading that pistol. Yeah. You don't have, you don't have what you time. need. You can't do it. Yeah. It needed waxed at the back of the chamber so that all six chambers didn't explode all at one oh, time. Right. You know, so the, these pistols were a little bit more... Like a one-off. Yeah, and like I said, once you loaded your rounds, I mean, you were in battle, yeah. you can shoot those rounds off, but reloading the pistol, and that's good for close combat. So sure, yeah. You and I are this close on horseback. Pull yeah, I pistol. pulled a pistol and aimed it right gone. at you. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can hit you, I can wound you, you know. Uh, they would also have a saber. Yeah. So they're going to pull a saber, and they're going to hack at each other, maneuvering their horse around, and swinging these sabers at one another, bashing each other on the head and the arms, and, and you know knocking each other off the horse, uh, that's the kind of weaponry they would have. So you got your carbine, pistol, saber. Most charges earlier in, in the Civil War are saber charges. Yeah. They don't have their rifles out. They got their saber drawn. They're going at a gallop right into the right into the face of the enemy, and they're going to mix on horseback, and it's hand to hand. On horseback. Um, Was there any of that in day one? No, no, no cavalry to cavalry. Jeb Stewart's, you know, he's off. Right. It's dismounted cavalry. They're off their horses, down on a knee, shooting their carbines. They look like infantry. Yeah. Yeah, they look like infantry. Okay. Yeah. So that's all about about the small arms. Right. We could have a whole other discussion about artillery. Yeah. 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 Um, I know that you've told me this story before. But I want you to tell it again because I think it's one of my favorite stories uh, that I've ever heard about the Civil War. I'll just start it to set you up. There's stories of people after the fact, after the after the battle has done and gone, people go onto the battlefield, find weapons, uh, rifles, packed to the brim with ammo. So in other words, you pick up a rifle and it's got like. Ten shots rammed down in it. The whole barrel is just full of bullets, yeah. and then that leads you to think, like, what the, what happened here, right? Like, right. what? So, what happened? What? What? What's the reason? And so there are various different reasons why that might occur. Um, many will immediately jump to the fact that that whoever is loading the gun can't pull the trigger, won't pull the trigger. In other words, they don't want to fight. They don't want to kill another person. Mm. But because they're alongside comrades, most of the time it's from your hometown, your home county. These are your friends, your relatives, your neighbors. Pretty hard to go home after the war and face the neighborhood that you were cowardly and you ran away, that you didn't serve. And so one of the stories is, well, they might. They were brave enough to stand in line of battle, load the gun, and pull it up. And with all the noise and confusion and mm-hmm. the smoke of black powder going off, nobody realizes that your gun's not going off. But they see you busy. You're busy loading and pulling sure. it up, and they just think you're fighting. Sure. And so you may have a case of that occurring. You may also have the case where in the noise of battle, 
And you can only imagine the terror, the extreme terror and... and uh, chaos. Chaos of that, right? That I could load my weapon, cap it, and if the port is clogged, the cap is bad, and I pull the trigger and the hammer comes down on the cap and it doesn't detonate, how do I know it didn't go off? Right. I'm not going to notice that there's no recoil. Yeah, because everything is just crazy. I got adrenaline going out, crazy, yeah. right? I immediately tear the next cartridge and load it. Now, a lot of weapons are picked up after the Battle of Gettysburg. Excuse me. With two rounds loaded down a barrel. Now, the reason I think a lot of two-round guns are picked up is if I'm a good soldier and I don't know that gun didn't go off and I have rammed the second round down that barrel, mm. I realize there's more ramrods sticking out of this gun oh. than is appropriate. Oh, shit. Now what? Now I realize that gun didn't go off and I've got two rounds down this barrel. This gun is now inoperable. I can't shoot it with two rounds in it. What would happen if you did? It would most likely fail the barrel. Explode? Explode it. Because you've got one round blocked by the other round. It's too much. Yeah. You wouldn't even attempt to fire that. So if I know it, I'm going to drop it. If there's somebody wounded or killed near me, there's a weapon there. Pick that one up. Start fighting with that one. Mm. So I think a lot of two-round guns are mechanical failure, the round didn't go off, and when I realize it, when I load it, that there's too much ramrod. Now, I will tell you that using that same logical progression, if I've got three, four, five, up to ten rounds down a barrel... I know that. Yeah, right. And so the story has got to be, I know I'm not firing my gun. Right. I'm just going to stay here and keep loading. And look like I'm And doing look my like job. I'm fighting. Right. Now, was that because, I mean, what would be the pun? Is there a punishment for desertion? Like, I, I know in some things, if you deserted, you'd be killed for, tra- for traitor. Yes. Right? Is that is that the case? Absolutely. Yeah. If you run away in the face of battle, or you run away, you try and desert from the army and and you are caught, that is a crime punishable by firing squad. So if you are caught, and there are numerous documented cases of this in Confederate and Union armies, you are brought back into camp, you are tried by military, you are court-martialed for desertion, and you are convicted, a hole will be dug, you will be stood in front of that hole, in front of the entire brigade or division, a firing squad will be lined up, and you will be similar uh, shot in the presence of everyone. Fall back into the hole. So, yes, running away, desertion, in the face of battle, or even in, in the ranks normally during a march or in camp, if you're caught deserting, it is a crime punishable by death. So, one would say, why would I just stand where all the bullets are flying? Right. Not firing my gun. I mean, that's almost, that's crazier, but no. 
That's your only... You got a chance that the bullets will miss you here. Maybe you can get by, but if I run, people are going to tell. People back home are going to find out. I might just as soon get a merciful shot to the head, and it'll all be over. Yeah, and if you run, I mean, it's not like no one's going to know. No, no one's going to notice yeah, they're you. They're going to find out. Right. And if I get caught, then I could be executed. So, uh, for certain individuals. Now, by the time of Gettysburg, we're two years into the war. These, these are veteran soldiers on both sides. The number of occurrences of that are minor. Mm. These are veteran soldiers. Yeah. If you were a coward, most of them are gone, gone. by this point. These are seasoned people for the most part. Do we have a few 10-round rifles that are picked up? Yeah. Not huge numbers of them. That's why I say the two-round loaded gun is more more reasonable. Mm -hmm. That's an experienced soldier that all the guns going off, I can't tell when mine goes off. I don't feel the recoil. I got too much adrenaline. Mm -hmm. But when I load it, I realize... Holy cow, it didn't fire. Right. Now it's junk. Now Throw it down. Grab another one. Mm-hmm. You know, keep fighting. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask you here, um, this is an interesting question. Who would you say was the MVP of day one? Now we kind of already established that if day one had been it for the Battle of Gettysburg, it would have been a resounding win, another win for Lee and the Confederates. So... Who, who would you say was the MVP, most valuable person of day one for the Confederates? We could do both, Confederates and the Union. Overall, and this is going to this is going to be maybe surprising, the overall MVP I would award to co-Major, uh, or Brigadier General John Buford, Union Cavalry. Okay. Major General John Reynolds. Union Infantry. The reason is they recognize the geographical features of Gettysburg. They recognize that even if they couldn't hold the ground that they had chosen west and north of town, they recognized the strong positions available just south of town. And so they started and put in place what will result in a major victory. Now, is it a major victory on July 1? No. But you can always now look back. This is historical hindsight. Mm-hmm. And MVPs are always granted in, in hindsight, right? right? Yeah. So we wait till the game's over. We mm-hmm. wait till the season's over. Analyze then it. we look back. Right. And we say, okay, now, who, who meant was, the most? Yeah. So who meant the most to me and how this is going to play out? And we'll talk about day two, day three on different podcasts. But day one... Overall, I would say, John Buford, John Reynolds, because they are the mm. major players to say, you know what? Gettysburg's important. The road network, the terrain that we see, yes, let's do it. Let's commit. You guard it, I'm coming. They didn't know at that point that the Confederates would be coming, but they were making these decisions. And then as things played out, they started, they communicated, and they had the rally point. They set in motion what will become a victory. Right. Now, on the Confederate side, I would prob- I would give the MVP to uh, Jubal Early. Jubal Early's division is the Confederate division that arrives from the north 
down the Harrisburg Road in the late, in the after mid afternoon. They are the forces that arrive beyond the Union position, what we call the flank. It's Jubal Early's brigades that knock the first domino down of the line of Union dominoes that collapses the line. So when Jubal Early's guys arrive, they're like the third group of Confederates to arrive on the field. They're, they're some of the guys that they weren't going to Gettysburg. They were marching toward Cashtown. They had orders to not bring on an engagement. They get word during their march, they go to Gettysburg. And on arrival, they recognize the situation. They deploy in the line of battle, and they, they bring the hammer blow that knocks that first domino down. When you set all your dominoes down, you know, when you tip that first one over, it's Jubilee's guys that tip the first one over. Mm. They drive the Union Army off that first, and then it just starts to collapse down the Union line. So I would give the Confederate MVP Jubilee because he brings victory. He's the one who drives them off the first spot. Kind of starts that starts chain Starts the chain of events, the reaction, and it just, it, it then triggers it. Hmm. So I'm going to, I'd pick Jubor. All right. So he's the one who kind of gets that first victory in battle that sends them to retreat. Then the next group. The next is, group can't is, stay there. Right? They, they got to go back now. Now the next group is like, they're all retreating. Now here comes some more. I got to go. We got to go. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned with, with um, Buford and Reynolds, they kind of realized what kind of terrain was there, how, how it would, the, the advantages of having, of holding these spots, even if we can't hold the town, there's good spots up here that will be very advantageous was, I mean, was it all determined by eye from just scouting and seeing it or, or, or are these generals, do they have maps, right? So that do they have maps that, that kind of lay out the terrain where they can just sit down at a table, look at the map and go, here's our high points. Here's our low points. Did they have that kind of information or was it kind of just by the eye? Was it Uh, both? Uh, so there are topographical maps and there are topographical map makers uh, in both armies. And so uh, gen- generals will have, they have army corps, uh, the engineers within the army. They are responsible for things like map making, map acquisition, uh, terrain features, the building of bridges like pontoon bridges, um, maybe the reinforcement of roadways to make the, the passage of an army better. This is the, the job of the engineering corps. Mm. And so there are maps, and there are roadmaps. Um, and this is one of the things the Confederates want to get when they come into Pennsylvania is, where can I get a map of the roads? Ah, right. Right. Because uh, this isn't our territory. We don't... I don't. You know, we don't yeah. have firsthand knowledge right. of the towns and roads, but I need a map. Yeah. So Lee, Lee needs a map. Um, uh, you know, one of the the, the histories of this is uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson is dead. He had been uh, killed at the Battle of Chancellorsville, mortally wounded, and he will die eight days later. But Thomas Stonewall Jackson had a legendary map maker, Jedediah Hotchkiss, and Hotchkiss had made the maps for for. 
Stonewall Jackson that he had used and is credited for part of his major victories of the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1862. One of the things that made Stonewall Jackson legendary is this guy would just come out of nowhere and the next and win a battle and show up at the next place and he's just you know uh, um, thwarting like surprising all these Union elements in the valley. One of the reasons was he had the bat. He knows mm-hmm. the valley. He knows the roads. And so he can look at it and he's planning. He takes a smaller force. He goes here and beats them and shows up over here at a different place and beats them. And they can't figure out where this guy's coming from. Right. Jedediah Hotchkiss is credited with enabling Stonewall Jackson with the information necessary for, for a bold and audacious commander to say, I'm going after him. Right. And I'm going to drive my men to march fast, and we're going to use shortcuts and roads and terrain, and we're going to whoop them. Because I know what's out there. Yeah. Now, part of the story is that Lee, comprehending someday we may need to invade the North. And in the 1862 campaign, the Maryland campaign that resulted in the Battle of Antietam, Lee's initial thoughts were, if not encountered, he would go into Pennsylvania then is they had started to gather the information necessary and they were building maps of south-central Pennsylvania then. So Jedediah Hotchkiss had kind of been tasked with, you need to start putting maps together of Pennsylvania, Mm. of south-central Pennsylvania, because we can see the tactical need, even then, to know what's out to go there, yeah, to go there, and so, and you know, there's there's a funny story. There was a map of Adams County on the wall of a of a uh, of a pub uh, just outside the town of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And when Early's troops march, you know, that early march through yeah. Gettysburg, they stop at these pubs. They, you know, they're they're scavenging. They're, they're going everywhere. Right. You know, they're guys. So one of the places they go is taverns. They're going to go in a tavern. Sure, they got whiskey. Yeah, take the barrels of whiskey. You know, we're taking that. So they got it. And there's a map of Adams County on the wall. Out comes the pocket knife, and it gets carved out of the frame. Thank you very much. Rolled up. Thank you very much. Thanks for the info. We got something good here. That's a map. Great. So that's important. It's a map. So we do have maps. Huh. Now, a normal road map might, wouldn't have topographical features like today's right, yeah, map. You yeah. don't need topographical features. But engineers might create a topographical map. Uh, but for the most part, on the move, like John Buford's cavalry, yeah. it's with his eyes. He's looking at it. Mm-hmm. He can see how far you can see from a ridge line, an elevated position, high open hills, not wooded. If it's completely wooded, I can't see off of that hill, even right. if it's high. Right. But if it's high, very devoid of, veg- of trees, and I can see for a mile... Ooh, that's a good position. Mm-hmm. So they're evaluating using the eyes as they're traveling. And so I would say Buford evaluated with the eyes. He knew when he got to Gettysburg. Yeah. As he's looking around, he's recognizing it. Right. So both pieces of your question are in play. For the most part, it's traveling via roads, via map, but looking at terrain with the eye. Right. And, and the fact that there was no guerrilla warfare at this time, is that accurate to say there was no guerrilla warfare? Um, like, line up, 
the other side lines up. The, Let's go. The the battles in earnest occur with armies. Armies in position. Right. There is there is guerrilla type warfare. A lot of that is in the western areas of Missouri and Kansas, uh, and some of those areas, West Virginia, uh, places like that where small bands of people are just guerrilla attacking and irritating, you know, causing right. losses. Okay, so there was some so, of like, run, hide behind this tree, fire, run over fire, here, get the behind the rock. trees across roads, yeah. you know, do do things of that nature. Hide in the bushes and... Tear up uh, telegraph lines, tear up railroad uh, rails, disable the, tr- the, the railroad, uh, things of that nature. There is guerrilla type things. Uh, but... The Civil War is going to be decided on major fields of battle, right. army against army. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's kind of wind down this a little bit. I want you to set us up for day two. So day one's ending. Kind of describe a little bit what's going on at the very tail end of day one and what kind of plans are being made to get into the night into day two. Okay. So. Yep, very good segue. So... The commander of the Union Army, Major General George Gordon Meade, receives word from Reynolds that he has begun an engagement west of the town of Gettysburg. He's encountered Lee's army. He has made the decision that this road network, he's going to defend. He's going to fight hard as he can to keep that road network, that intersection at Gettysburg. When Meade gets this word... He does not know, he can't picture in his mind, do we have the topographical advantage? Is this a place to put my entire army? Do I want to commit to this place? I can see it on a road map. Yeah, there's 10 major roads that go into there. Okay, that's good. I can see which ones are improved. There's a road from Baltimore called the Baltimore Pike. That'll be a great road surface, whether it's raining, we get bad weather or whatever. Okay, I could link that with my supply base out of Washington through Westminster, Maryland. Okay, but topographically, do I have dominant ground to place a 93,000-man army to fight it worth it? a decisive battle? Yeah. One thing you have to understand is when George Meade takes command of this army, by the way, on July 1st, he's only been in command three days. The commander of the Union Army had been Major General Joe Hooker. He quit. Lincoln grabbed his resignation because he had had doubts building up about this commander. Mm. George Meade received his orders to become commander of this army on June 28th. On June 28th, he started his engineers looking at maps of Maryland and Pennsylvania. If I encounter Robert E. Lee, I want good ground to fight on. Start looking at the geography. I want to know where the rivers, the creeks, the ridges. Where can I put this army? I want the advantage. His engineers were to work. They had already identified a long creek line with a ridge in Maryland called the Pipe Creek Line. That if we encounter Lee here, okay, we'll fall back to here. We'll have the dominant ground. He's making plans. You're right. When he gets word up here in South Central Pennsylvania, Gettysburg, he's not sure. 
He know he's feeling more comfortable about Pike Creek. He had yeah. already put together contingency plans for that. So what he does is he's going to take one of his most trusted commanders, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock. He's near him. His second corps is near George Meade. He says, come here to my tent. You know John Reynolds, he's gotten into a fight up at Gettysburg. He says there's good ground. He's starting to engage, defend us. There's a road network here. I want you to go up there. I'm relieving you of your command. Your corps stays here. You go up there on my behalf. You're in charge. He's not the most senior guy up there. Meade writes it down, an order. Hancock's in charge. He outranks you all Mm. on my behalf. I want you to take command of the situation, and I want you to tell me if we have the advantage. Hancock will ride in a wagon studying a map, going toward Gettysburg. Meade has found out Reynolds is dead. He's been killed in battle prior to sending Mm -hmm. Hancock. Hancock goes up there part of the way in a wagon so he can look at the maps, study them. Then he gets out so he can do better on horseback. He arrives just as Union forces are retreating through town. He's going to team up with Major General Oliver O. Howard, who's the 11th Corps commander, Union commander. He was the overall commander now that Reynolds was dead when he arrived. As soon as he arrived, he outranks everybody. Guess what? You're in charge. That's how it goes in the military. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a ranking officer, boom. You just you're got here, you're in charge. He was in charge. Hancock shows up says, I'm in charge. Howard says, you not. don't outrank me. Yeah. Hancock says, Meade made me in charge. I have the order in my pocket. Okay. We don't have to get like that. Yeah. We can work together. Let's get these guys organized. So they recognize, they get them organized. Hancock recognizes the geographical features that give them the advantage. He makes the key decision to send word back to Meade. We have good ground at Gettysburg. We can hold this place. When Meade gets word from Hancock, he will now commit the balance of his Army of the Potomac to Gettysburg. He will now dispatch four more corps, the balance of 93,000 men. Orders go out get to Gettysburg as fast as you can. Meade will now commit personally. Now he will leave his headquarters in Tawnytown, Maryland. He will head to Gettysburg. He will arrive there at midnight. Upon arriving at midnight, what's the first thing George Meade wants to do? He talks with Hancock. He talks with Han- uh, Howard. But he wants to see the ground. And the weather reports that we have from the time is that it's a clear sky bright moon. Mm -hmm. He can see in the night. He's going to ride the ridges. Cemetery Ridge. He's going to look at Cemetery Hill. He's going to look at these guys. He's starting to put together a plan. As my army's arriving, where am I putting them? Where are they going to be? He's starting to put the plan together of his defensive position. What will eventually take the shape of a fishhook. Meade arrives at midnight and has a very sleepless night now as he's planning. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow as the sun rises, I have troops coming this way. Meade over or Lee, however, overnight has his now his army is now gathering, headed toward Gettysburg. He's won a victory. But he realizes 
And as the day was progressing, he could see Cemetery Hill beyond the town. He gave orders that we need to push them off that hill before they concentrate there. He had asked Richard Yule, his second corps commander, the man who takes over for Stonewall Jackson, to continue to push the enemy and take that hill south of town if practicable. Because he recognized that if the Union Army concentrated there, that would be a very formidable position to drive them from. So he recognized it right away. Yule, for various various reasons, is not able to mount a, an attack against them to drive the Union from that hill. So overnight, they are able to concentrate there. They're starting to dig in. They're starting to pile up fence rails. They're setting up their artillery. They're creating a defensive position on Cemetery and Culpeville. Lee, overnight, now gets word we didn't drive them from that hill, General. Lee is going to have to contemplate overnight what will I do tomorrow with the enemy entrenched up on that hill. Should I attack here? Should I go somewhere else? As his army will be arriving. And so in the morning hours, he's going to have to take an assessment of What's the strength of the Union Army? Did they get additional forces that arrived overnight? Where are they positioned? Uh, can I fight my decisive battle here? What's before me? He will not be able to get a more accurate picture till daylight on July 2nd. So that kind of sets us right. up. So the Union Army, in other words, I mean, you can, they pushed the chips in. Right to some extent, like we're all in a little bit here. We're bringing a lot of troops to defend this spot, and the Confederates are coming in. They're bringing troops, but now it's their decision: Are you going to go all in too? Or are you, or are you pushing it in as well? Are we doing this here? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Or are you backing out? Are you folding? Right, and we'll we'll fight another day. So yeah. okay. Yeah, I got smacked. The Union Army says, yeah. "Okay, you you smacked me. You, yeah. drove me. you drove me back." But maybe they're giving them the, come on. Right. Yeah, come on. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're here. We're not leaving. You want some more? Yeah. Yeah. So we're not leaving. What are you going to do? And understand the, the numerical numbers. Coming into the campaign, you, you read various books. And depending on the era of when it was written, you know, you'll see different numbers. But the Union Army outnumbers Robert E. Lee. Uh, the most common, most current numbers... Uh, National Park Service, 93,000 Union in the Union Army, about 70,000 in the Confederate Army. So you got a you got a, a numerical advantage in the Union Army to begin with. Okay, so this is what now as these forces are are gravitating toward Gettysburg, this is kind of the numerical disadvantage or, or advantage you're going to see mm-hmm. as these men, as the whole thing now lines up, is the Union Army's bigger. Confederate Army's smaller. Let's see what, let's see what plays out. All right. All right, so that was day one. Uh, hopefully we'll be back here at some point, do day two, day yeah. three. It's there's, a lot of fun. There's, there's a lot. There's Plenty a to lot talk to talk about. Yeah, Plenty to talk for sure. about. We could, we could go on for days. Yeah, and I just got to say, he came here with a book that was open on two pages, never turned a page. 
most of that information was straight from his head. I mean, it's crazy impressive. We talked for about an hour and a half on that, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I even learned some stuff. So good, uh, good. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank- yeah, looking forward to day two. Yeah, yeah. Thank everybody for listening. I hope you guys learn a lot of new stuff, um, and uh, we'll be back. All right. Thanks. Bye bye.